You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. So we're going to be in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated. Any children here can be dismissed to classes. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Good to see you guys today. Real quick, um, would you just pray with me and then we'll hop into today's sermon. God, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for these people, these men, these women, these kids that you have, you have brought here into this space at this time, um, not to hear me, but to hear from you, um, to hear your word, to sing songs to you, to pray to you, to be prayed for, uh, to be ministered to, uh, to hear from you and your spirit today. And I pray as we walk through this little story of Thomas and, and Jesus and their interaction Uh, God, that you would heal the unbelief that might be in our our hearts, Um, whether it's unbelief that is stubborn and stuck and has refused to believe anything about Jesus for a long time, or whether there's just a a walk with you that we've had that we now find ourselves off step with, out of step with, a place that we've come to where, where we just don't feel like we can go further with you for some reason, would you heal that unbelief as well and let us walk with you freely and fully believing uh, that the evidence that we need to trust you is right in who you are and what you've already done for us. And so would you heal the unbelief in my heart today um, and the hearts of those who have gathered? Uh, And we just pray that you would do your work in us. Uh, Thank you for Jesus. Thanks for being a good dad. Thanks for your spirit who is in us and with us. And thanks for Jesus who is on the throne. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, funny enough, Matt this morning uh, called me Scottio. and it was like, do people call you that? Is that like a nickname? No, nicknames are never a thing uh, for me at all. Um, because when you're a second grader and your, your name rhymes with potty, uh, it kind of like just kills all the charm of having a nickname uh, at any point in time. And so uh, nicknames never really a thing, but I had two nicknames uh, at some point for like a very short stint during my baseball career when I was younger. Uh, and they were directly related to my athletic prowess, which you can imagine. Um, first, I earned the name Magnet. Uh, because I would always make contact with the ball when I was up to bat, right? And if you're thinking that I made contact with the ball via a bat, um, you would be sorely mistaken. Uh, Usually I made contact with the ball via my face uh, or my hand or leg or my side or 
something else. So it was an accurate nickname. It wasn't a bad nickname. It was accurate. Just the reason wasn't flattering. Uh, better than potty, still. Uh, and then the second nickname I earned was wheels uh, because of my speed. And so I didn't have much in the way of like raw athletic talent, and I still don't. Um, but I could run in a straight line over a very short distance. All right, so I could do that. Um, <laughs> Years later, like the first heat that I ever had in like a track meet, like I killed it. Like I, I did pretty good in that because I could run in a straight line pretty quick for a few seconds. And, and so like, man, I, one day, like I was priding myself on, hey, my, my speed as a kid, we were watching old family movies or whatever. Uh, some of my baseball games were on there and I watched myself. I come up to bat, somehow managed to not get hit by a ball, uh, but instead hit the ball. And as I'm like running the bases, I'm, I'm like, I hear people saying, hey, come on, wheels, go wheels, you know, like cheer me on or whatever. And as I'm watching, uh, I'm like chugging down the baseline. I'm like, man, how big is this ball field that I'm running down? Because it's taken me a long time to get from base to base. Uh, it's a regular size field. And so I find out as like a 30 something man who may not have been good at much in terms of like athletic stuff, but I prided myself on my ability to run in a straight line over a very short distance. I found out that like my nickname wheels was a joke. I was heckled by my parents and, and the, the team adults or whatever. And so those are my nicknames. Nope. That, Thanks. That only lasted for so long, right? That was like a season or two. Um, thank goodness. Uh, one nickname was accurate, but, but misleading. Uh, another nickname that was inaccurate, but like just mean, you know, at the same time. But imagine for 2,000 years, uh, having everyone that you know, know you by a nickname that's misleading, that's inaccurate, and that is actually mean. And that is the story of Doubting Thomas. Um, because he said one thing at one point in time and, and he changed his mind a few days later, right? But, but that story of doubting Thomas, uh, dude, like he was bullied. He's been bullied by adults, by pastors and commentators and everybody. Children's curriculum for two millennia now. He gets a bad rap, all right? As if wanting evidence for something uh, is bad, especially when you hear that it's like about someone coming back from the dead. And most important here is that that doubting Thomas isn't doubting anymore. He is believing Thomas. And in fact, he is, he is believing probably more than he ever has in his entire life because by God's grace, man, he is with Jesus now and more sure than ever that Jesus actually rose from the dead and is alive. And so today, we hope to redeem Thomas's reputation a little bit as we go through this story. And I hope that maybe our faith, those of us who are in here, will, will be assured in some way that our unbelief that all of us carry into this room, Christian or not Christian, might melt away a bit and might be healed a little bit as we not just look at Thomas, but look at, at the Jesus that wanted Thomas. And so our, uh, our main idea for this morning um, is this, that Jesus has given us everything that we need for everyone to believe. That's our main idea this morning. We'll start by looking at the first couple of verses in our focal passage uh, this is John 20, 24 through 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Point one this morning is that stubbornness gets in truth's way. 
We don't know a ton about Thomas, um, but we have seen him like here and there pop up in John as we've been through this uh, book. The first time he pops up was in John 11. Um, Jesus tells the disciples that his buddy Lazarus has died. And so he's going to go back to Judea to, to wake him up, to raise him from the dead. Uh, but Jesus and his disciples had just left uh, Judea. They just left that place because the people there just tried to kill them. Um, and so Jesus says, I'm going to go back. And Thomas says, literally out loud is what it says, let us also go that we may die with him. It's like you get, he's like a glass, half empty, skeptical, pessimistic kind of a person. We see him again show up in John 14. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to leave soon. He's going to have to go away soon, but he will come back for them and that they know the way where he's going already anyway. But they're all confused. They don't know what Jesus is talking about. And so Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Thomas isn't afraid of, of asking for directions, all right? So he's a little bit skeptical, uh, a little bit glass half empty, but he also wants to know uh, what's going on. He wants to be informed, doesn't want to be taken off guard, or he doesn't assume anything. And so when we see him here for the third time in John, nothing that he says or does, none of the stuff should really be surprising. Last week, we saw Jesus' disciples. They were huddled together, doors locked, curtains shut, afraid of what might happen if the Jewish leaders found out where they were, and they were afraid that they would, they would get them killed just like they got Jesus killed. But crazy enough, Jesus just kind of walks through uh, their locked door, body and soul, as if it's not even there. He says hi, and then he says uh, he's going to send them with the Holy Spirit. He's going to send them out into the world to tell people who believe uh, that their sins are forgiven, right? That's pretty, pretty wild stuff. And Thomas, he missed this entire thing. He missed this whole interaction. We don't know if he like went to the bathroom, if he lost track of time at home, uh, fell down like a YouTube rabbit trail or something because he was researching stuff. We don't know where he was or why, um, but he wasn't with the rest of the disciples when Jesus showed up. But when he finally got there, the disciples like told him that they saw Jesus, wounds and all, flesh and blood, alive and well and better than ever. And he's like, no, you didn't. It's like, nah. Didn't happen, hence the nickname Doubting Thomas. And let's be clear, like Thomas should have doubted this. Like he should have had some questions about this stuff. Like it's a pretty wild claim to make. If you go out for some, for some Ben and Jerry's, right, or some uh, late night Taco Bell or whatever, and then when you come back home, your roommate or your family says that they saw a dead person, not a ghost, not a zombie, but a person that you all know and loved that had, that had died. They showed up, they walked through the door, they carried on a conversation, and then they just left before he got back, right? You, you should probably have some questions as you're standing with your pint of, you know, fish food or your cheesy gordita crunch or whatever. Like, you should probably have some questions for those people and not just assume that they know what's going on. And so wanting to see Jesus with his own eyes and examine his wounds with his own hands, like, that's not crazy, that makes sense. But here's the thing, Thomas wasn't just doubting. Thomas was being stubborn. I will never believe if I don't see these specific things I think I should get to see if that was real. That's different than saying, it's tough to swallow. It's a little hard to believe. Uh, man, I'm open to being persuaded, though. Like, do you have any compelling evidence? That's different. If you have 
doubts or questions, if you are in here and you're not sure about Jesus, like, that's okay. Christianity should never kill our curiosity before we meet Jesus or after we meet Jesus. There are folks who probably have more questions after they come to know Jesus and are trying to make sense of life with him in it than they did before. The Lord wants you to be curious about him. He wants you to ask questions, what he meant when he said this or when he did this, why the world is the way that it is. He wants you to be hungry for more. But being hungry for more is different than refusing to eat what's on your plate because the foods are touching each other. Or because like you've never seen this green thing before, this disgusting, it's gonna kill me, you know, if I, if I eat it. Uh, or because you don't know how old like the thing is that you were just served. That's not being hungry, right? That's not curiosity. That's not healthy doubt that is being stubborn. And this is what Thomas is doing with the disciples over Jesus. And it's what we do. And it honestly gets in the way of us actually knowing the truth. And so three little subpoints here in our first point is that, man, stubbornness, it doesn't care what it sees. Um, anyone who's been, a, who's been a kid, anyone who has eaten with a child, like knows that it doesn't matter how many times they've seen someone eat uh, a certain kind of food and survive, right? Or, or no matter how many times they've seen uh, people eat it and then be like, oh, this tastes really good, no matter how objectively, scientifically nutritious it is uh, big bones, strong muscles, better uh, night vision, whatever it happens to be. Like there are some things that kids simply will not eat. You can make a PowerPoint presentation, right? You could like try to demonstrate your entire uh, health chart or whatever over the course of your life. You could bring in 10 of their peers who also say that it's good and they would still be like, but what is this black stuff, right? It looks like a booger. Like, I don't want to eat any of this stuff. That's what they would respond to because they have it set in their minds that that's what it's going to taste like, right? Despite the evidence that is in front of them. Stubbornness doesn't care about truth because it doesn't care about evidence. It might care about some evidence, like very specific evidence that it thinks that it should see and needs to see. Jesus' wounds, right? Thomas really cared about that evidence. Let me see him. Let me touch him myself. But anything else, any other evidence, it doesn't matter. He had a group of peers telling him about what happened. And they weren't strangers. They were his friends. They were fellow disciples. Their evidence would have counted in court, but, but it did not count in the, in the court of Thomas's opinion. There were two separate instances of this happening, first with Mary, right? And then with the disciples here in the house. That didn't matter. None of it was compelling at all because before genuinely considering any evidence, he had already determined what evidence mattered and what evidence didn't matter. And that's just not what genuine hunger for truth looks like. We know we're dealing with stubbornness and we're unwilling to look at or weigh all of the evidence that is in front of us. That's stubbornness. Number two, stubbornness doesn't care what it says. It's, it's not just saying, like, I won't believe it unless I see it. It's that I won't believe you even if you are saying it. Like, it, it, it's no different than the stubborn kid at the table who won't eat the green stuff. Like, are you suggesting that your mom and dad are lying to you? Do you think that we're trying to poison you? Do you think we're like, it's a reaction video, which some parents do. Don't do a reaction. We're like, yeah, it tastes really good, but it tastes really bad. And we're just trying to see what your response is. You know, the face that you make or whatever. It's not any of that stuff at all. Like there are things that stubbornness will refuse to say 
But in refusing to say those things, there are things that stubbornness will say out loud, even if it doesn't mean to, even if it's my parents are trying to kill me, right? It, it doesn't just not care about truth. It will publicly declare untruth out loud, even if it doesn't know it. Here's an example. And unless Jesus showed up to Thomas, Thomas was going to live the rest of his life calling his friends and fellow disciples liars. Untrustworthy, unreliable, and moving forward as they went out and did whatever they were going to do, like as they followed and believed Jesus, who's alive and well, like he would go on to think that they were fools for building their life on a shared hallucination or something, right? Unless Jesus showed up to Thomas, he was going to live the rest of his life saying Jesus was still dead. And unless Jesus showed up to Thomas, he was fine saying something wasn't true, even if it was, all because he wanted to define truth on his own terms. Jesus had to meet him on his own terms. And that's not stubborn, it's just selfish. Which goes into the third thing here, is that stubbornness doesn't care where it stays. Um, stubbornness can have a lot of company, Along with it, it can be accompanied by, by suffering. God, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the people that I love, the people that are around me? Those are good questions. But then it, it can move toward, like stubbornness can come along and, and move it towards like, God, if you're true, this wouldn't have happened. If you're real and you're good and you're all powerful, then you would have shown up and done something different. Or you will show up and you will fix this thing the, the way that I think you should fix it, this mess that you've made or that you let happen. And if not, then I can't believe that this is real or that you're real or that any of this is worthwhile anymore. Stubbornness in the midst of suffering can lead us to draw lines in the sand and demand that God dance in them. Otherwise, he's not real. Stubbornness can be accompanied by compassion, right? Like what happens when the people that you care about become stubborn themselves? They draw lines in the sand over who God is or what he would say or what he's like or, or what he's not like, whether he's there or not. And they come to, 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 to conclusions that put you on the other side of that line. Like what do you do in that case? And, and then maybe you want to like straddle the line out of care. You want them to know that like maybe you'll even cross that line with them just to make sure that they know they're not alone in it. They might feel like God is not with them, but you want them to know that, that you're there even if they think God's not. And all of a sudden you've given someone else in your life the power to determine what is true about life and about the Lord. You've let someone else draw lines in the sand. And unless he meets their demands, he's not God to either of you. Stubbornness can be accompanied by a lot of things. And a lot of things that deserve, honestly, a lot of attention and a lot of care. But where stubbornness comes from is always the same. It's pride. Who are we to give God an ultimatum? Who are we to serve God papers and say, hey, here's the court date. If you don't show up at this date at this time in a presentable fashion, you will be held in contempt of my court. He, he doesn't dance to our tune. He doesn't answer to our rules. He doesn't take our tests to stay within our lines. If we want something that answers to us, then we might want witchcraft or new age stuff or whatever. 
but I'm not sure why we'd want to like throw ourselves at something where we are the impressive ones in the equation. Like we have been, we've been trying that since about five minutes into humanity. And in, in 2023, like all it's gotten us are stores that, shell, that sell like shiny rocks and, and packs of cards and bloodier wars and a mental health crisis. That's where that's gotten us. And stubbornness is more than happy to let us stay right there. To let us sit in despair and bitterness and purposelessness in a world where we believe Jesus doesn't come back to life. Death is the end for us all. Only to find out that in the end, we've been denying the God of the universe who is in charge. And we are opposed to him after it's too late. Your stubbornness is happy to let you stay right there so long as it gets to believe that it's right. It's pride. It cares nothing at all about you or about your questions or about the truth or about the people now on the other side of a line that, that you decided to draw. And so it's a good time for us to like take stock of what's going on in here, even right now. As we're talking about this stuff, what's happening in here? What's happening in here? Christians and non-Christians, where are you being stubborn? Where do we feel like God needs to earn our belief or earn our obedience? Can we separate our stubbornness from what's accompanying it? Can we, can we pull apart our suffering? Can we pull apart our compassion, our empathy, our questions? Can we pull those apart from our pride and acknowledge that they're not the same? Can we do that? We get to consider Thomas and not just point a finger at him, right? But instead maybe wonder how much we actually have in common with him here. He's the butt of a lot of jokes, but maybe we're more like him than we think. For worse, but maybe also for better because it's maybe not just in our ability to, to be stubborn, but maybe it's in our ability to be confronted with evidence and then to let go of our unbelief. And that's our second point this morning. We'll read John 20, 26 through 29. Here's what happens eight days later. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Point two this morning is that evidence gets in unbelief's way. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a surprise party before. Like you're, you're one of the surprisers. Everybody's hanging around waiting for the surprise E to, to walk in the door. And all of a sudden someone sees like headlights pull in the driveway or whatever. And you think that they're there. So everyone gets, gets in place and they huddle down, they hide and it's quiet for a minute. And then the door opens up, everyone jumps out and they yell surprise only to find out that it's like the one guy who's always late to everything, right? He was supposed to be there like 15 minutes ago. And so now like everyone has to reset and go back to where they were again and pretend like it was just as exciting as it was the first time when the real person shows up. That's the picture I get when like I'm, I'm reading this part because the scene is shot for shot exactly like what we saw last week, except Thomas wasn't there the first time. So Jesus had to set everything up again, right? Disciples inside, door locked, everyone's hanging around. And once again, Jesus kind of like walks through the, the locked door, but no one's as excited as they were the first time. Oh, wow. Je 
That's a cool trick. Jesus, never seen that before. Um, like, like Jesus says the same line. He says, peace be with you. But this time, instead of just showing his wounds to everyone, like he did the first time around, he, he turns to Thomas and tells him to see and touch exactly what he said he need to see and touch word for word in order for him to believe that he had risen from the dead. Now it'd be really easy to like look at that and be like, hey, see, like Jesus did what Thomas told him to do. Thomas put Jesus to the test and, and Jesus showed up. Why shouldn't I do the same thing? Why can't I do the same thing and expect Jesus to show up in that way for me to prove himself? Here's why. Jesus can do whatever the heck he wants to do, <laughs> right? Like he didn't have to show up. He is not a clown that got hired for a birthday party. He's not a circus monkey in some way. He, he didn't show up here because he was contractually obligated to do so. And also, like, we're not Thomas. This is between Jesus and Thomas. Just because Jesus does one thing one time doesn't mean that he has made a new rule for himself that now he can never break again. In fact, like, almost every single person who's ever come to believe in Jesus since Thomas never had the experience that Thomas had, Right? like never saw or touched the wounds of Jesus. And that faith, that faith carried them through the whole of their life, right? Into death and into glory, which is the point that Jesus and John are trying to make here. Like it can't all be like this one thing with Thomas. Most people aren't going to believe because they tested him or because they saw him, but because they let themselves see the evidence in front of them and they relented. They stopped disbelieving. And so here's the first little sub-point uh, in this point this morning. Number one is that, is that testing is not believing. Belief can't be built on a constant demand for reassurance in new ways all the time. <laughs> like reassurance is good in relationships. I'm not saying that that's bad. That's a really good thing. But if, if you're constantly seeing every new situation, every new bump in the road, or even every like quiet, calm stretch of anything, like as a reason to ask, are they still committed? Do they still like me? Are they still there? Are they still good? Will they stick around? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they say this? Like, like, and we view everything as a test, whether or not the other person knows it, like to prove themselves to you, that's not healthy. That is insecurity or like if that's me as a teenager. It's another way to talk about it. Testing isn't believing. Testing is disbelieving until someone can prove you otherwise even if they already have before. It's, and it's never just like a one-time thing. Oh, I just need Jesus to show up one time, right? And, and then I'll believe. No, because what happens when then he doesn't show up in the way that you want again, that same way a week later or a month later or a year later? And if it started with this experience that you had, it's only a matter of time before that itch becomes a thing that you feel like you need to scratch. What began with the spectacle will only be sustained by a lifelong parade of spectacles. I'm not saying that you won't see Jesus at work in your life, okay? You get to see Jesus at work in your life. What I'm saying is that Jesus has already proven himself to you. He's already done that. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. God shows his love for us and that while we, will, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can make a, a list 
a mile long of all the things that Jesus could do to prove himself to us, but none of them would be as powerful or as weighty or as definitive a proof of who he is and his commitment to us than the fact that he became like us and that he took on our life and our sin in a suffering world. He, he took to the cross our guilt and our shame and our judgment. He died for us and he rose from the dead to make sure that we knew that he did that. Whatever test you have for Jesus to pass, it is not as tough as that. And he already passed that test. Testing isn't believing. believing. Believing isn't looking for the next new way for God to prove himself. It's looking at all that God has already done, especially on the cross and in the empty tomb and saying, gosh, that's Jesus. That's the king. That's the guy that I know. It is reassurance built on things already done, not hope for in things that we're making up as we go along. It's the second subpoint this morning is this, that seeing, seeing is not believing. Uh, there are people who would say that if, they, if, if Jesus just showed up right now, like flesh and blood right here in the room, they would believe. And I'm just saying, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Like, I mean, maybe you would, but there's nothing stopping you from attributing that, whatever that might look like, to something or someone else, right? Maybe it's a, a hallucination. Maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's another spirit. Maybe it's an alien. Uh, it's like Scrooge. From, uh, from a Christmas carol, when he sees the ghost of his, his business partner, uh, Jacob Marley, he says, you may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. And yes, you should be hearing the Muppet version of that when I say that. That is the only correct version. In uh, Romans, Paul says that we all see creation and we know there's something eternal. There is something with the divine nature that made all of this, right? That, that says nothing about science. It says nothing about science or dark matter, all the questions, the big bangs, all the things. Just that behind all of creation is something outside of creation. That's just looking with your eyeballs 101. That's what Paul says. And yet sin 101 says, ah, but, but maybe there's not. And if we believe there's not, then we can do kind of whatever we want. We can deny truth. We can be stubborn. Sin is stubborn that way. Set aside the Bible, right? In the age of Photoshop and, and deep fakes and chat GTP and, and AI and CGI, anyone who scrolls the internet or grades papers for a living or just watches any form of entertainment, they can't believe everything that they see. If you do, you're a fool. And there are probably a lot of students that would love to have you for a teacher, right? If that's the case. How many true crime podcasts or real life investigation dateline stuff end up with multiple theories and a big question mark at the end because different people have seen the same evidence and arrive at different conclusions? Happens all the time. Seeing isn't believing. Believing isn't just observing the evidence. It's looking at the evidence in front of you and all that God has already done especially on the cross and in the empty tomb and not being blinded by the stubbornness of our hearts. It's, it's being able to ask, what does this mean? Right? If this is true, if, if what I'm observing is actually true, then what does this mean that Jesus lived and he died and he lived again? And, and can I be content with all that I haven't seen? If all I have seen seems to point to Jesus being the real deal. And that leads us here. Third little sub point is that relenting is believing. 
If you've uh, been around the church for a bit, you may have heard like the call to repent and to believe, to change your mind and your life, to turn away from sin, uh, the, the stuff that like used to define you um, and lead you in life and to turn towards Jesus. And for some of us in here today, repenting looks like relenting. It means giving in to Jesus and confessing what you already know to be true, what all the evidence already points towards, that he is Lord and God, like Thomas said. Jesus tells Thomas, look, here, like, look at me, touch this stuff. Now stop disbelieving and start believing. And honestly, that's, that's us. Like, we don't need any more evidence. Jesus doesn't need to prove himself Again, he doesn't need to show us anything else. We know who he is, we know what he did, and we know what he says, and we just need to believe it. That's what he's saying right here. Like, we can stop pretending like we are some objective, neutral party who's just like trying to follow the facts. For, for a lot of people, that is just a fake cover for saying that we just don't want to believe. And it wouldn't matter if we were born 2,000 years ago and saw it with their own eyes like a ton of people who saw him but didn't believe in him did. Right? Or if he, he showed up here right now, we wouldn't believe because we don't want to. We're stubborn. And maybe we're afraid. Maybe there's something accompanied by compassion. Maybe we're something else, but we are being stubborn. And that goes for people who, who aren't Christians in that room, or in this room. And that goes for Christians in this room. Some of us don't want to make the first leap. But, but you maybe you know that you should. And you can. You can go from a, a doubting Thomas to a believing Thomas. And some of us have made that leap already, right? But at some point, we decided that we followed Jesus far enough, and he was good enough for grace, but not our obedience. Something has gotten in the way. I know it sounds like Jesus is, is knocking Thomas for, for having to see in order to believe. He's not. I don't think he's trying to knock him. Jesus Jesus did this same song and dance for the rest of the disciples eight days ago, right? Like he did the same stuff, so it couldn't have been all bad. But if Jesus is knocking Thomas, it's because he's not believing his friends. Like the people in his life were trying to tell Thomas the truth, but he wasn't listening. He had to see it for himself. And some of you, Christian or not Christian, have people in your life who are trying to tell you the truth and you're just not listening. And you want more evidence before you leap. But Jesus is trying to tell you that the future of his people is not going to be built by seeing more, but by hearing and believing what's already known. And that faith, many would call it blind, but what Jesus calls it here is blessed. So let's take a look at the last little bit of our passage this morning, John 20, 30 through 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Hey, he said the title. He said the title of the sermon series. It's right here. It's in the book. Uh, third point this morning is this, that, that the church is his body of evidence today. Uh, speaking of like uh, true crime podcasts, Dateline stuff or whatever, it's pretty hard to, to try a murder case without a body. Right? Like if you're, if you're saying someone's been killed, it's a bit of a hole in your case if you don't have the body of the person, like to at least be able to verify that like very important fact in the case that someone is dead, right? Kind of important. And even if you do have a body, right? It, it can be tough to convict someone 
Even if you, like, if everyone knows that guy definitely did it, right? Everyone knows he did it, but it can be tough to, to get him there if there's no physical evidence, right? If it's all circumstantial, like, yeah, they could have been there. They could have done this, but there's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There's no hail, hair or like torn piece of clothing hanging off a branch or something somewhere that, that like physically connects someone to the scene of a crime. And then that just leaves room for reasonable doubt, right? And if there's reasonable doubt, you just can't convict, just can't do it. Now with Jesus, there is, there's no body. There is a body, like it's physically in heaven reigning on the throne, but it's, but it's not in our possession, right? It's not in a museum. It's not in a morgue somewhere. He was murdered, but he rose from the dead. And it's not like we have like plaster molds, right? Of the bottom of his sandals in some mud pit somewhere walking around and we have like a lock of his hair in a plastic baggie. Nothing like that. But, but he wants us to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he is who he says he is. And he's given us everything that we need and everything that anybody would need for us to believe just that. And so the first little subpoint in this one is just this, that Jesus wants us to believe. Some of us may not actually believe that this morning. Jesus wants us to believe. Some of us might wonder why Jesus, uh, why his resurrected body is still wounded. Right? That's a good question. Like if, if he can restart his heart and fill his body back up with blood and like reanimate all of his organs without any permanent damage, then like why are there scars? There's a quote from Leo the Great. He was an old bishop of Rome. Uh, and he said this, the traces of the nails and spear had been retained to heal the wounds of unbelieving hearts. I love that. Jesus was marked by a lot of things. Uh, in his life that surely would have been recognized after his resurrection. But Jesus was also marked by two nails and the tip of a spear in his death. We don't know exactly why Jesus kept those. The scriptures do not say why those still mark his body, but we do know that they were used as evidence that Jesus, that Jesus who was alive in front of the disciples was actually the same Jesus who had died. Right? And, and to them, uh, it was at least part of the evidence that healed their unbelief and compelled them to believe. And so he kept them. He showed them. He went out of his way to go where his people were, through a locked door, twice, so that all of them, not just most of them, but all of them, including stubborn Thomas, would believe. He wanted them to believe, and he wanted them to believe because he also wants us to believe. And we know that because he's already thinking about people who didn't see and touch his wounds, right? But still believed in the same Jesus. That included people who were alive then, right? That, that never saw but would, hurt, but would hear and believe. That included people who were alive then. And it also includes us who are alive today. Before you even existed to invent tests, to give to God, to prove himself, he was thinking about how he can make sure that you would believe. It's kind of cool. And the only way for anyone to believe that Jesus rose from the dead without seeing Jesus risen from the dead was to hear about it from someone else. Credible sources. Jesus went out of his way for Mary and the disciples, and especially for Thomas, not just for them, but he went there for us. He went out of his way for us because their testimony that he knew would be talked about and written down for ages and ages to come, that's what gives us the grounds to believe to begin with, yeah? Which is the second little sub point here is that, that Jesus gives us all that we need to believe. 
You and I believe today because of the testimony of disciples of Jesus who came before us. I know it drives some of you nuts to know that there are things that Jesus said and did that no one bothered to write down. Yeah? <laughs> like, why wouldn't you write that down? I have a lot of questions. I would love to know more about what Jesus said and did. What did he mean when he said this? Give me more of the things. I want to know all of that stuff. But, but here, like, John didn't write down all the things, and he did that on purpose. But, but John's not trying to convince you or me of everything. He's trying to convince you of one thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And while there was an entire lifetime of evidence, like he pulled together the best stuff that he knew you could reasonably digest over the course of an afternoon and again and again and again over the course of your entire life to be persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt that that's who Jesus is, Lord and God. And John's just one of the accounts of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. There are three others, and there are a load of other things written about the story of God and his people before and after Jesus showed up on the scene. And all of this was, was way more of a glimpse into the legitimacy of Jesus than Thomas ever had. Right? We get to see way more than Thomas ever did. We have way more because we've seen even more of God's faithfulness to his people in the scriptures, but certainly over the course of church history. Like if you're someone who's struggling to believe because of a question that you have or a dilemma or a, maybe a friction that you have with what Jesus says or what you think the Bible says about something or what you've heard some Christians say at some point, dude, I will happily give you time and a cup of coffee and an afternoon to chat about those things and maybe I'll help or, or maybe I will make it worse when we sit down and talk. But what John is saying here and what you need to hear is that not everything is as important as everything else. Your issues, your questions, those are important. But nothing is as important as deciding whether or not Jesus lived and died and rose again to pay for your sin and give you eternal life and peace with God. To figure that out first. And if he did, you've got to figure out what that means for you. And we can chat about that over coffee as well. Number three, Jesus makes the church his body of evidence. Um, one of my favorite things about this last little section in our focal passage is that it reminds us that we're not placing our faith in a book or in a character in a book or in a Jesus who lives solely within the pages of a book, right? We get to place our faith in a person who who did things and said things that weren't caught on camera, <laughs> that weren't written down, like that, that time has forgotten, that maybe no one will ever talk about again. Jesus is a real flesh and blood person, fully God and fully man, and some people got to meet him or got to meet others who met him and wrote some things down about him. And he, like not the ink and the paper, but he changed the world as people read what he did and saw his people and came to believe that he was alive and that he made his people alive and that he could make them alive too. Jesus' body, it might be gone, but the New Testament repeatedly calls the church the body of Christ here on earth. We are meant to be Jesus' living body of evidence that the world can see and that the world can examine our wounds and our scars and our sins 
and all of it to find evidence of Jesus. And as we head into like our response time, you might be like, like, is that the best that we have to offer? Is that the best that Jesus has to offer is the church? Like a group of people who get it right, but sometimes get it very wrong. A group of stubborn, stubborn people and, and self-righteous people and suffering people and sinning people. That's your evidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the best that we've got. And it's good. Because how compelling must Jesus be for, for folks like that to follow him, let alone to follow him together. Doubting Thomas became believing Thomas, who eventually became, at least as tradition has it, going Thomas. He's credited for taking the gospel to India, right? He, he went as a member of the body of Christ to a place where Jesus' physical body never set foot. And I'm sure that he used his own like glass, half empty, skeptical, stubborn testimony as evidence to persuade people who hadn't and who couldn't see Jesus to believe in Jesus, not because of Thomas, but in a lot of ways in spite of Thomas. And they believed, not because of what they saw in Thomas, but because of what they saw in the Jesus that, that Thomas, who, who wanted Thomas, the Jesus who wanted Thomas, who lived for Thomas, who died for Thomas, who rose for Thomas, who showed Thomas his wounds so that when people tens or hundreds or thousands of years later heard about it, probably through a group of people that like weren't very impressive, the reality of his grace might be so impressive, so compelling as to heal anyone's unbelief. Most people aren't going to believe because they tested Jesus or saw Jesus with their own eyes, but because they couldn't resist the evidence of Jesus in front of them. And we, church, get to be evidence of his grace and it's grace that we get to receive today before we go out to the world and testify it. Man, you guys can come on up. Don't look at Thomas's story today and just marvel at how little faith he had. Marvel at how great Jesus was and how great he had to be to compel him to believe. We get to be witnesses to the world. We get to be Jesus' body of evidence. And like Thomas, we have the freedom and the privilege to be honest about how impressive we aren't <laughs> because it paints an honest picture of how impressive and compelling Jesus actually is. And that witness, we get to do that out there, but it doesn't start out there. That witness, it starts right here. We get to witness with each other and we get to witness to each other the grace that we need and that we have everything in Jesus for us to live and for us to know that, that we live because he still lives. So the invitation right now this morning is the same as it is every single week that we gather together as a church. It is to, to consider where you are with the Lord. And we get to do that tangibly, with a tangible representation, not just of the people in the room, but the bread and the juice here that tangibly represent the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And you may not be very impressive this morning. I'm not. Most of, in, most of us in here aren't impressive. You might come in here stubborn with, with unbelief and questions and frustrations and friction. You might come in here 
suffering and hurting and wounded. And you might come in here free and at peace with the Lord and rejoicing in all this stuff. And if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, I encourage you to sit and to consider that and to ponder what the Lord might be stirring in you today and to think about what it might look like for you to come up and rejoice in what God has done by partaking in communion, to declare that it is in Jesus. He has everything that you need to be at peace and to have life with the Lord. We get to do that when we celebrate communion. If you're not in Christ, you're not a believer this morning, hey, then, then this is not for you. This table is not for you, but Jesus absolutely is. We are here for you. We would love to testify, but also hear your story, right? And maybe illuminate where God is wanting to work grace in your life. And would love to come up here and take communion for the first time with you if that's the thing that you want to do, right? There'll be some questions up on the screen that you can look at and sift through to help you consider where you're at with the Lord. You can pray at your seat. You can pray at the prayer bench over there. There'll be some folks by that red tree and back by that back wall. Uh, I would love to pray with you. Those folks would love to pray with you. You can sing with the band. But what you get to do this morning is consider Jesus has given you everything you need to believe. And so what stubbornness in your heart do you get to let go and then rejoice in the goodness of God?